I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present the Liturgy Guys. All right, guys, um, we got another. <laughs> Jesse loves that trumpet. I love the trumpet fanfare. It's just so much fun. I love especially. that it sounds like a trumpet that is going through puberty. And <laughs> it's not really a trombone yet. <laughs> yeah, it's like a dying Dennis, coyote somewhere. Dennis yeah. has the trumpet. I just have the cough. But you know what I don't like about this uh, remote oh, I thought you were going to say what I don't like about Jesse. Oh. No. No, is that when we're in person, I just have to cough. But now that we're remote, I can always just mute the microphone. I That's cough. True. And people don't think I cough anymore, but Self, I do cough. Self-mutilation is what I call that. <coughs> Thank you, Chris. Now we know your presence is with us. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so today. We're going to talk about VQA. And and it's a post-conciliar document. So we're doing that whole thing again. Oh, back and, to those. Are these things ever going to end? No, Seriously, they're never it's longer than Sacrosanctum Concilium. Basically, any document after Vatican II is a post-conciliar document. <laughs> this one happens to be <laughs> about liturgy, right? Yeah, so we're doing so, Vicesimus Quintus, Quintus Annus, Annus, which, which means, means 25 years, basically. 25 years ago. Yeah. But remember. It was 25 years ago. Sergeant Pepper hit. Wait, that's not it. We don't have the rights to that, Chris, and I don't even know what that was. <laughs> that's the Beatles, isn't it? Anyway, this is what popes do. They put out important documents. So, Jesse, since you said it was feast day, 1903, what document? Try. Well, right. So then Pius XI comes in after Pius X dies in 1928, 25 years later, and puts out, either of you know this one? Ooh, ah, uh, you. Mus tralas <laughs> It's a good and, uh, guess. Divini cultus, divini cultus. Oh, divini cultus. Of course, right. of course. And Pius XI says, "Hey, if you just do what Pius X said, everything's going to be fine." And the people who did it are having good things. The people who didn't aren't. So this on the anniversary is kind of a thing that's a papal tradition. So here we have 1988, which is a long time ago, right? 32 years ago. Um, even though it was released in 89. And then it's the 25th anniversary of the Constitution Sacrosanctum Concilium, Vatican II's document on liturgy. Hey, d- can I can I try to contextualize this just a bit more? So in, no, in, this is right, your favorite thing. In this series, I hope I remember these dates. I think I was there for these podcasts, but they were a long time ago. All right, so after Sacrosanctum Concilium, we wanted to do kind of significant documents that followed. And the first one was... I can never remember Sacram Liturgiam or Liturgiam Sacram, that one by Paul VI that was like just the next month. So that was the first one we looked at. And then we looked at three of the post conciliar instructions Inter Ecumenici, Tres Apincanos, that's right. And then Liturgicae Instaurationes. That was awesome. Do you remember that one? That was a good one. That's good, yeah. And so this is kind of the next in line. So it's not a strictly speaking, post-concil- uh, uh, post-conciliar instruction. There's two more. We haven't gotten to those, Liturgiam Authenticum, and, uh, right. or rather, Veritatis Legitimae, and then Liturgiam Authenticum. But this, this is, is kind of in that same, letter. Yeah, it's in that same 
no, I don't know, genus, I guess, even though it's a little bit uh, different. So anyway, right. so, an, an apostolic letter is not an instruction. This is what happens. It's kind of like, I'm the apostle, Peter, successor, and I have things to tell you. Now that we have this anniversary, let's take stock and talk about this uh, a little bit. So this is what he's doing. 25 years after Vatican II, a lot of it is just basically Vatican II said X. Please don't forget and do what Vatican II said. One of the things that this does, though, and John Paul, Chris, you had a moment before where you're like, whoa, John Paul's name was John Paul, mm -hmm. meaning he was the successor of Pope John and Paul VI, and then, of course, John Paul I. But those were the two popes of Vatican II saying, we are continuing Vatican II. Sometimes people, I remember in John Paul's lifetime, people said, oh, he was just a Polish conservative, whatever, but he was not an archaeological kind of conservative. He was just holding to the teaching of Vatican II. And so he says flat out in paragraph two, you know, I'm stating the lasting importance of the Second Vatican Council. And what he wants to do is bring it to a certain maturity. Now, I don't remember the first initial post-conciliar years. I was too, too young. But from what I hear from Kevin and others, it's just uh, there's some wild things that went on, false notions about what Vatican II was about. There's a notion that it was a break from the established tradition and that it was opening the door to every novelty. And he's saying, let's talk about this a little bit. So the first big section there is renewal in accord with tradition. How about that? That yeah. is what we like. That's that, uh, I suppose, today we would call that uh, the hermeneutic of uh, re reform and renewal, form. maybe. Right. And mm -hmm. so the first thing he says was, in response to the request of the fathers of the Council of Trent, which is the middle of the 16th century, right, Chris? Uh, it is, yeah, yeah, 1545 to 1563. But, yeah, <laughs> you, I mean, when we looked at um, oh, some of those things about uh, the germ, maybe it's one of those quizzes, every single one of the germ's first 15 paragraphs is about Council of Trent this and Council of Trent that. Pius the fifth, this and Pius the fifth, that. And I mean, these guys have their eyes on Trent and on the tradition. So if, if uh, the popular notion is there's this big break, the, the popes don't see it that way. Right. And so to see Vatican II as a completion of Trent is an interesting thing, but you know, Trent is mentioned in Vatican II in a number of places and saying, we're doing what Trent asked for. And so he's giving this little history. Hey, I'm, we're not just making this up. Liturgical reform started at least in the modern era in Trent. Then he mentions Pius X for reform of certain things. Then he mentions Pius XII in Mediatur Day, which we've talked about before. And then this overall reform of the liturgy was in harmony with the great tradition. And then Sagrasena Concilium comes in the line of these great documents. I love and never get tired of mentioning, what's the year of Mediatur Day, Chris, or Jesse? You probably know the day and the hour, Chris, of Mediatur Day. Uh, no, At least I you know the year. It's uh, 40, 1947. Correct. And what year did Vatican II open? 62. So you have this notion that it's barely 15 years old and they right. have... 57. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, John Not comes a math in 59. Guy, right? Yeah. So basically, this established liturgical tradition of reform or notion of reform is, is written up. They've been talking about it for a long time, the liturgical movement. So um, what John Paul says here is, if you see it properly... Sagrasen and Concilium, he says, uh, asks us to, quote, reform of the liturgy stri in strictly traditional and in accordance with the ancient usage of the Holy Fathers. So ancient, renewal, getting to the essentials. It's the opposite of anything goes and 
hop around the church with leotards on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We, we've heard that. Chris used to do that, by the way. <laughs> till I, till I read the diary. Used to. <laughs> <laughs> Only devotional prayer now. Uh, but yeah, we hear that couplet all the time. Tradition and progress. Uh, tradition and development. Both of those have to be held together. It's not just simply traditionalism and it's not just anything goes in the current circumstance. It has to be both of these for to have the mind of the church right. and to see the and, liturgy like she And wants. I have sympathy for Usu's Antiquior people, right? Extraordinary form folks. Because I, uh, I went through a, a kind of rebellious phase. I was an odd teenager in that I rebelled by going to the Latin mass rather than like to rock concerts and doing drugs. You're kind of but an it wasn't. Odd adult. <laughs> yeah, I'm not an adult. But time has proven me <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I was uh, I was a tratty before there was tratty. But then I started reading the liturgical movement and I was like, oh, wait, I don't have to retreat into this kind of cave of safety if we understand the liturgy properly. So what John Paul II brings out here first are a couple of... Um, principles that he takes out of Vatican II, which are deeply traditional. But the first one is that the Mass is a reenactment of the Paschal mystery of Christ in the liturgy of the Church. Mm. Boom, 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 period. Why on earth would this need to be said, Jesse well, or Chris? Well, people weren't seeing it. <laughs> yeah, what were the competing theories of the 70s? Neither of you know. Well, and it was just a play or a, just a meal with friends? Mm-hmm. Well, and I think part of a, you know, the the deal with modernism as a period is it's very anthropocentric. And so the liturgy became less about God and his saving work and more about man's own abilities to uh, to work and to act and to think sort of a, a hangover from enlightenment. And, you know, if, if that's if you're formed in a culture that that is teaching you that it's all about you and your own abilities, well, that is is antithetical the, the word? I mean, that's yeah. just absolutely contrary to what the liturgy is about. It's like oil and water. It just doesn't doesn't mix. Right. The, the calling of the altar, the table, the calling of the church, the meeting house. This was kind of the low, 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 low anthropocentric turn that a lot of liturgical people made in the 70s and, and through the 80s, even through the 90s. And some people are still operating out of that norm today. But what John Paul says is that he reminds us that the quote is that it was from the side of Christ as he slept upon the cross they're issued the sublime sacrament of the whole church. In other words, blood and water. So the representation of the Paschal mystery is not just, oh, well, let's apply this backward, but the fact that the liturgy flows from Christ's own sacrifice of himself and that we're offering to God the Father that same sacrifice. And, you know, there's this great quote that he takes from Vatican II. In the memorial sacrifice, the work of our redemption is accomplished. We talked about this in one of the more recent podcasts. But I think it's really important to say, what does it mean that the work of our redemption isn't accomplished? Is, is accomplished? Isn't it done? He died on the cross. The gates of heaven are open. We're on the list with the bouncer, and we're in heaven. We have to accept that, right? We actually have to choose redemption. That's true. But it seems like it's already been done. So yeah, why is to say the work is continuing to be done? Yeah. I, and do you remember this line from uh, The Spirit of the Liturgy by uh, by Ratzinger? It says that the temple is still under construction. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love that. I think it's still to be done because in God's plan, in, in this mystery, uh, is he, he wants us to be co-workers in this uh, work of redemption. So our... Our redemption includes, I mean, even if Christ's going to do 99.9% .9 of the heavy lifting, we're still a part of the equation that not simply has to be received, I think, but uh, worked for in uh, you know, fear and trembling. 
Right. So instead of this kind of legalistic notion that Christ died on the cross, boom, the gates are open, we're in, as long as we say yes, there's this broader notion that creation didn't end on the sixth day of Genesis, but that it's continuing until it comes to its end, and our participation in the work of that is not just our get enough merits and fewer demerits, and then we're found worthy, but that we're actually participating in the doing, the continuing of the glorification of the world. And so that's what we're doing at Mass. It's duty to do that, sure, because you owe honor to God, because he created you, but more importantly, get on the lawnmower <laughs> with God and mow the lawn of this unruly garden, you know, pull the weeds. He wants the garden of the world to be made uh, perfect in part by our doing of that. So that's a really, really important thing. If this is just, hey, we break bread together on our knees around the table of God, then you're kind of doing something shallow and not that interesting. You know, number seven, he talks a bit about the presences of Christ in the church, which I think most people say is something kind of new that Vatican II emphasized that other documents uh, maybe did not. That Because, you know, the world was real presence, real presence, real presence, probably in reaction to Trent. So if the Protestant reformers are denying the sacrament of the Eucharist, what are you going to do? Come back at them. Real presence, real presence, real presence, real presence. And what was sort of the supreme participation in that would have been benediction. But what they're trying to broaden out here is Christ is present in a lot of ways in the church. Are you looking at this document too, Chris? Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm going to chew on a wheat thin while you tell us. Christ is <laughs> present in the assembled prayer in his name. Yeah, well, yeah that is the crispy wheat. Are you actually doing that? Yeah, well, there's no lunch served in the college. So there's a mute to... button. <laughs> Didn't I, I just explain the mute button? I wanted to share the wheat then with you. Anyway, go ahead. Oh. <laughs> Present in the church assembled at prayer. What does that mean? I think that yeah. might make people uh, nervous. Well, no, it's I, so so. What the what the Constitution said. Again, based on Christ, he's present where two or three are gathered. He's present uh, in the person of his of his minister. Mm -hmm. uh, he's present when the word is proclaimed. And so, you know, I think what the church, what the council and the church is trying to get us to see is to broaden our rather myopic view. You know, what they're not saying is that uh, these presences, Paul VI will say this, is is to call the Eucharist the real presence isn't to deny that the others are somehow, isn't to say that the others are somehow unreal. Rather, it's to say that the Eucharistic presence in the sacrifice of the mass is the, uh, the presence uh, per excellentium. It's the most excellent because it's a substantial and abiding, but they're trying to get us to see that Christ is present in a great variety of other ways. And this, I think, uh, go to, go to number eight, Dennis. So, here, the, the Holy Father is pointing to three principal truths from the Constitution he wants to bring before us. One is, as you said, the reenactment of Christ in this Paschal mystery. But two, and kind of related to that, is the proclamation of the Word of God. Because, and maybe this does go back, Dennis, to you know Protestants and, and Trent, right? The, 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 I don't know, the caricature, real or false, was that Catholics had sacraments and Protestants had the Word of God. Uh, but you know, the, the, the word of God is kind of a, an audible sacrament of the word of God, that the words of the scripture, especially proclaimed at the liturgy, mm -hmm. sound like the word of the Trinity. And that's kind of the second point and that the, that the council tried to emphasize is the place of the word of God in the liturgy. If Jesus showed up in your room tonight, woke you up in the middle of the night, burst through your ceiling, which is always my good 
go-to image. I would say, oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, you should. (laughs) And he starts telling you stuff that he wants you to know about yourself and your life and your process of salvation. You'd be like, whoa, Jesus is here telling me stuff that I need to know. Think of the word of God that way, but in the sacramental form. Jesus is here through the proclamation, through the sacramental reality, the minister, the text, the meaning, the word, the active principle of God's existence. And in fact, that word present, I, I looked it up etymologically, means starts from pray, P-R-A-E, and essay, to stand before. In other words, when some when God is present, he's standing before you saying, boom, here I am, and I've got something to convey to you about my own existence. So, Chris, Chris, mm, yes, does this make people nervous that present in the assembled people is the same as present in the Blessed Sacrament? Well, again, it's not the same. They're both real, but the, the modes of their presence, I think is how the church would say it, are different. But no, right. it, should, it shouldn't make, uh, <laughs> you know, I think what makes saints saints is they see God in all sorts of places that most people don't. Right. Even, you know, even think about Jesus incarnate 2000 years ago. There are a lot of people who saw God, but didn't recognize him as such. But those with true spiritual vision and true spiritual life are able to see, see Christ then as God. But even today, you know, Mother Teresa is seeing God in slums, Mm -hmm. places like that. And people who are, but this is not equating all the presences, even though the presence is the same presence. So what it says here is, uh, in a special and preeminent fashion in the sacrifice of the mass under the Eucharistic species. The Latin is sublimiore modo. I must mean like sublime, you know, the most important uh, preeminent fashion. Or there's another phrase they use a lot in, in Latin for the presence as the, um, do you remember what I'm talking about? Chris? I sure, just had a Par excellence. Par excellence. That's it. Yeah. That sounds Frenchy. Yeah. Sounds like you don't, don't remember excellent. what you're talking about. <laughs> well, but I'm I didn't, happy and I didn't. you finished your wheat then. That's really what's important. Well, I have a whole box here. See? Oh, oh no. Yeah, I know. Well, I'm, I go to work during the day. I go to my office and we don't have any food. So I have to bring snacks. To well, you should be eating gummy worms or something. <laughs> right. But anyway, what's the idea? Holy things, Christ's presence, and it says they should be treated in a holy manner. Whoa. You know, sometimes you read papal documents, whether it's Pius X or Pius XI or Pius XII or John Paul II, and they just say the most obvious things again and again. It's like, why, John Paul, are you telling us to treat holy things in a holy manner? Because people often are not doing it, right? It's a, it's a strange situation, but um, that's one of the things he wants to, uh, to make yeah. knowable. And remind us all. All right, let's pick up this third uh, principle thing. So the first was the first guiding principle, reenactment of the Paschal Mystery. The second was the reading of the Word of God. Mm-hmm. Oh, are you talking about the self-manifestation of the church? or oh, Jesse. Jesse, how did you know that? Uh, oh, my goodness. <laughs> I love when you guys give me the document beforehand. and I can. Yeah, we got to stop doing and, that. Yeah, well, what does self-manifestation mean? I mean, it's sort of like fancy lingo. I'm going to look up the etymology of manifestation, too. Yeah. Go ahead, Chris. Well, I, I just think that when the, there's this line in the Constitution that the, the most preeminent manifestation of the church is when it's gathered around the bishop at one altar at his cathedral when he's surrounded by his priests and his deacons and the faithful. If you want to see, I mean, the church is present and active in a variety of ways when she teaches, when she serves, when she feeds. and uh, But if you want to see her most clearly manifested, it's at this sort of uh, episcopal uh, type of mass. And so, uh, you know, you probably recall 
Is the last encyclical? Anybody? Anybody? John Paul II? Bueller. Go ahead, Chris. Tell us. It's uh, Ecclesiae de Eucharistia, the church from the Eucharist. And so this is a theme that he, uh, you know, it's not his, uh, it's the church's, is that, you know, to that question, does the church make the Eucharist or does the Eucharist make the church? Yes. The answer is yes, right? And so there's this relationship between the mystery of the church relative to the liturgy. And that's this kind of this third point. And so there's this great, you know, I, I think he makes this in this document. There's uh, the 16 documents of the council. Four of them are called constitutions. The first is constitution on the sacred liturgy. The second is, uh, or wh- one of the second is, Dave the second, but is Dave Arabum on the word, but the two remaining ones are on ecclesiology. They're on the church, Lumen Gentium and Gaudium et Spes, the church in the modern world. And so the relationship between liturgy and ecclesiology is, you know, just one of the, one of the truths that uh, he and the council is trying to make. So right. that's the, the third principle that he wants uh, to keep uh, letting guide the church. Which is actually more important than you might think. It sounds sort of like pointy headed, Professor stuff, but when somebody explained to me once the church is the continuing action of Christ in the world, then the light bulb went off. The mystical body, the church, is Christ's continuing action of the three offices in the world. And so when the church does liturgy, in other words, the act which is the primary way that the continuing continuing redemption act redemptive act of Christ is operative, that's when the church is most itself, because that's what a church Yes, you know, a police officer is most a police officer when those police officer stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And so the church has one and holy and offering the sacrifice of Christ and having many members and having this universality and coming from the apostles. That's when the church is what it mostly is. And when it starts doing other things, like, oh, it's our little version of liturgy and we do our local thing outside the universal church and its permissions. And we sort of redefine the dogma according to our own image. And it's our little gathering of the meal and bring bring together underneath. Then it starts to fracture the church, rather than promote the unity of the church, and it it diminishes the effective power of the church in the world. Right, and you don't want to do that to Jesus. Mm-hmm. All right. So then we get some guidelines here in section three in the renewal of liturgical life, and there's you know again a lot of. Um, description of what the nature of the liturgy is the exercise of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. I don't know that people think of that often sort of like, Oh, we have a priest. The priest is deputed sort of to do these things. And then we get Eucharist because he can do things we can't, but to think of it in a larger sense, if the church is the mystical body of Christ, that is Christ continuing to offer the sacrifice to the father, then liturgy is the doing of that act of Christ in us and with us and as Christ. And so that's an important, important idea to keep in mind. And that's why they're not private acts. This is why liturgy is a communal act because it's an act of the many members of Christ and not anybody's personal preference of how things, how things should go. Do you want to jump ahead to difficulties, Chris? I love when it, like these things go from broad generalizations to very specific instructions. That seems like a pattern, right? Well, he, he was fond yeah. of this pattern himself as he, he would look back to general principles and they say, okay, how are those being applied and lived out today? And so that's kind of this next section as he talks about some difficulties. Aron- I hear that weep then again. Ah, mm-hmm. Aron- yep. <laughs> erroneous applications and positive uh, results. You want me to go through the difficulties, Dennis? Yeah, he's hungry. He's going to be. Yeah, eating. well, go ahead. I'm having difficulty mm-hmm. with 
speaking and eating. <laughs> Here's some of the difficulties. Right? So he lays out these beautiful truths, but he says, they're not so easily understood and implemented. And here's why is that too many people see religion as somewhat of a private affair. It's not mm -hmm. a corporate thing. It's, uh, you know, Jesus, is my own personal Lord and savior, and I'll worship him however I want. Uh, the sixties secondly brought with it kind of a rejection of uh, institutions, uh, and the church is an institution. And so we'll reject the churches, uh, as well. Uh, the church was becoming less and is becoming, I suppose, less and less visible and influential in society. Many people have called into question their own uh, personal faith. Um, he'll go on to say, yeah, I like this the sentence, the, 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 the transition from simply being present, that one. Yeah. So it's uh, being passive often. kind of at a low mass before Vatican II. Yeah, very often in a rather passive and silent way to a fuller and more active participation has been, for some, too demanding. Mm. Others just simply don't give a rip about the new books and so <laughs> don't try to understand them, teach them to others. Others still, what does he say, have promoted outlandish innovations, which have nothing to do with the books, nothing to do with the council, nothing to do with solid liturgical principles that I've just reminded you of in the first part of this document. And yeah, you skipped so, a phrase there, Chris. He said, others... I? have turned oh. back in a one-sided and exclusive way to the previous liturgical reforms and guarantee, consider them sole guarantee of certainty and faith. So mm -hmm. this is kind of his, uh, if you don't accept Vatican II, that's a problem as well. Now he gave you know broad latitude for the extraordinary form for his time. So he's not 100% opposed to it, but you have to be in line with the idea that Vatican II is a legitimate action of Christ in his church. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nonetheless, the Atlantis innovations will sometimes send people to the bunkers of safety, and I get that. Yeah. Yeah, well, let's, why don't you just skip ahead to 13, uh, kind of in the same vein, other erroneous, erroneous applications. applications. Lord, there's been noted illicit omissions or uh, additions to the rites. Mm -hmm. um, there have been disregard, basically, for the instructions that have come from bishops or from the Holy See. There's been abuses about general absolution. Um there's been uh, confusion about the nature of the ordained priesthood relative to the priesthood of the faithful. And so uh, this, these, are, these are consequences that bishops, he says, need to root out. But, you know, even despite all that, he points to, you can't deny, even while you can't deny there's been difficulties and erroneous applications, you can't deny either there's been some positive results. What does he say those are, Dennis? Uh, I was looking at the future of well. <laughs> All right, I'll, at number twelve. I think you skipped that one, so we're going back yeah, to it. Now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he, he, I, yeah. Uh, I don't approve of how he arranged the material here. So yeah, apparently. Bad news, good yeah, news. That's very obvious because you just you just put it in your own order. He need a better editor on this. Oh yeah. What does he say? Most people received the Reformed liturgy with what does he say? Joy and joyous fervor. No, yeah, no, no. Spirit of obedience. I don't know if that's true exactly. <laughs> And maybe people who were there in the 40s and were dealing with Jansenism and stuff, maybe they did receive it yeah. in a sort of joyous yeah. fervor. But what he sees as the good things is the word of God being proclaimed more uh, regularly and available to people, that the Bible and liturgical books are made present to people, that there's more active participation uh, in, uh, in liturgical celebrations that uh, lay ministers have uh, uh, done good or adequate jobs, and that in many places... And I think this is this is something I have to remind myself of. You know, speaking of myopia, uh, you forget that in parts of the world, I mean, the church is booming and very uh, vibrant. 
And so there has been a certain amount of vitality in some places. So this is his evaluation after he names the principles that have been drawn out of tradition, articulated at the council, uh, how he sees that they've been accepted poorly or well. Now, at the end of uh, section 14 is one of the great paragraphs of John Paul II's entire commentary on liturgy, I think, because it became kind of a cottage industry to talk about reform of the liturgy all the time. Reform, form, reform, 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 reform. But he, in a way, doesn't quite give it the smackdown, but he says the liturgy of the church goes beyond the liturgical reform. You know, if people are working in the field, which is, oh, I have to implement reform, I have to advance reform, I have to do reform all the time, then you're not actually praying the liturgy. You're not actually celebrating the liturgy, you're constantly worried about reforming the liturgy. So he says, we're not in the same situation as 1963, where everything needed reform. The books have been reformed. The generation of priests and faithful has used these books. And therefore, you can't continue to speak of change as it was spoken of at the time of the Constitution, 1963. What's more important, Chris, rather than just change, 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 change? Is uh, coming to a deeper grasp of what uh, is actually happening. So... uh slowing down the reforming and actually starting to understand and deepen and appreciate and entering into the mystery. That's, right. that's the task that he sees kind of uh, pivoting in uh, 1988. Right. Celebrated and, according to the current books and above all a reality in the spiritual order. I think that's the model of the liturgical Institute. That's the model of liturgy guys in many ways, right? So the church gives us the normative ordinary form, but our job is to celebrate them beautifully and live it in the spiritual order and not just become liturgiologists, right? Those who study liturgy all the time, but liturgists who actually pray the liturgy. Yeah. And I think in many ways, extraordinary form is meant to help us. That's why Pope Benedict uh, put out some more in pontificum so that we could live the ordinary form with some of the depths that the extraordinary form uh, teaches us. Yeah, it's it's like we had, you know, especially for us young guys here, you know, we've uh, <laughs> never had that vision or, or, and, you know, not that it was a golden age in 1950 or anything like that, but there was a sense of, uh, of uh, transcendence and uh, sacrality uh, to the liturgy that we'd lost sight of. And so making it present again can help to uh, help to strengthen that bond. And again, if what he's set up here is we're talking about uh, reform in light of tradition. So you have to have both of those poles. And if you don't, then the ship gets unmoored and starts yeah. uh, sailing in the wrong direction. And he talks about a couple of other issues, you know, that came up in this yeah. time, you know, biblical formation, adaptation of the liturgy and some new problems, liturgy and devotions. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think we need to go into all those because we've done a lot of that. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, how does it wind down? Oh, were you going to say something about that, Chris? No, I was going to agree with you. I mean, he'll okay. talk about uh, the congregation and the conference of bishops and the Dawson bishop, but... Um, about 21. The... 21. Mystagogic catechesis mm -hmm. is mentioned mm -hmm. there by name. Yeah. And uh, you're, you're Mr. Mystagogical catechesis. Mr. Mystagogy. Mr. Mystagogy. Tell, tell me, because I can never remember. What does that all mean? Mm. Well, it means that uh, you're presented in the liturgy with a whole tapestry of sacramental signs and symbols and words and actions and music and ministers and assembly and times and places and art and architecture. I mean, you do this all the time, Dennis. You're doing mystagogical catechesis on liturgical art and architecture, helping people to you know, encounter a building or an altar or a font or whatever, but being able to see the mystery that is behind or within or beneath these things. So that's the type of mystagogy that... Uh, 
right. he's after. So the, yeah. the word there, Agayan in Mystagogy is to lead, and then mm -hmm. Mystes is the mystery. So to lead from the external signs to the deeper and more important spiritual reality. Okay, so let's wind it down with 23. 23, you, love you, 23. I know you do, so I'll, I'll let you... Yeah. So at the beginning of this uh, uh, letter of was Quintus Annos, he talks about the council fathers sowing seeds. And here he comes back to this notion of the seed. He says, the seed was sown 25 years ago. It has known the rigors of winter the last, you know, from 1963 to 1988. <laughs> That's a long winter. <laughs> but the seed has sprouted and become a tree. It is a matter of the organic growth of a tree becoming ever stronger, the deeper it sinks its roots into the soil of tradition. tradition. Oh, I love that. That's so yeah, good. This, yeah, it's great. So, you know, if the if any tree, a natural tree is going to survive, you know, it can't just have a thin layer of topsoil. It's got to be able to extend its roots deep into the richness of tradition. And if the liturgy is similarly going to bear fruit in its sacraments and its participation, it has to extend those roots into the soil of tradition, even while it lives in the current day and reaches ahead and above to heavenly consummation. Mm -hmm. Right. So his goal, his hope at the end of the day is the very last you know, part of that paragraph 23 the liturgy on earth will fuse with that of heaven. That's awesome. Where it will form one choir to praise with one voice the Father through Jesus Christ. So there you go. Liturgy is a pre-existing reality. It's called the perfect worship of the mystical body as it exists in heaven. Our job is to figure out that kind of organizing structure of what it's about and impress it, so to speak, in the matter of the world. The song in your church would sound like the song of heaven, the praise of the Father if Christ to the Father in heaven should sound like the way we praise him. And so these kind of earthly liturgy, heavenly liturgy fuse, and they become more perfectly, you know, one a sacrament of the other. And that is happens when everything is done right. So there you go. Tradition and progress, hierarchy and faithful, law and adaptation, individual and community, silence and choral praise. When all these things are in right balance, the kingdom is manifested by way of foretaste in our life. What's the short version of that? Do what the books say. But do what the books say <laughs> with deep, 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 deep spiritual understanding to go beyond the books to let the art of the beauty that they contain be made knowable to the world. I there do have a question. Go, boys. Yeah. I'll have a so, weekend while you do that. Oh, gosh. Uh, so... <laughs> so crunchy you don't have to do it like right in your microphone i want you to enjoy it with me okay anyway go ahead so, uh so you guys were talking about reform 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 uh, what would a liturgiologist say to this idea that at some point we're going to get to the to the ideal liturgy and then we'll know that's the liturgy in perpetuity because i would imagine in maybe 100 200 300 years uh the mass will look different again a little bit. Uh, so what what would uh, so what have you guys say about that? Yeah, go Chris. Well, I would say the on the one hand, the liturgy is always perfect because Jesus is principal is the principal actor. And at the same time, it's always imperfect because you know we're involved. But the reason the liturgy will keep changing, and again, it's not there, there's this balance between integrity and unity versus diversity and adaptation. There's always this this is a tension that's not meant to be overcome. It's inherent in the nature of the beast, how, how this how this works. 
But the liturgy will keep changing because in 20 years from now, uh, different cultures will have changed and they will need to encounter Christ in different ways than we do. Same 50 years, 100 years. He's not going to change, but will change. And so, you know, the, the, the great mystery is how God has accommodated himself to us in the incarnation. And the liturgy is kind of an extension of that. And so I think it'll keep changing. Yeah, because the externals of the right are often bound up with conventions. And conventions are not God-given rules, but they're rules that are nonetheless legible in a society. Stoplights are red and go lights are green. But if in 100 years, you know, somehow those no, those colors flip, like, you know, we'd have to know that and drive differently. And so we might worship differently in the future. But always the idea is how do you best sacramentalize the, the non-changing uh, invisible spiritual reality? And if the conventional signs change in our world, then we might change the conventional signs of the liturgy, not just because we like them that way, but because they better sacramentalize the, the pre-existing reality. Probably by the time we get Vatican II fully implemented, we'll have to like be ready to change again, every, yeah. everything already. What was that quote that po the Pope John Paul II had that said the, the reform is over? Do you remember that, Chris? Brother Murdoch used to talk about that. Was that in... Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, no, no. Sponsor, it's in here when he it's it's when he talks about we're not in the same. Oh, we yeah. can't speak of reform in the same way as we did, right. you know, and change now. So it's kind of going from reforming books to deepening right. understanding. The reform's over. All the books are reformed. What's the goal now? Live them in the spiritual order. Yeah. Great. All right. Should we answer our liturgy questions? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Do I get to eat wheat thins while we do that? No. Stop it. Gosh. <laughs> You're the worst part of this podcast today. <laughs> <laughs> you know, at least it's not. Remember when you used to like slurp your coffee in, in the microphone? Yeah, I think people, that might have been. People love me for that. <laughs> well, there you go, Katie Thornton. This is uh, oh, that's this yesterday's better. coffee. Gross. This whole <laughs> podcast was just a prank on Katie Thornton. So, but we love you. It doesn't, and Kevin, too. Don't listen to anything that we said. Just that's just about Katie. All right, Thornton. time for a question. All right. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Okay, uh, we have another question this week from a, I would, uh, he's arguably a super fan, I would say, uh, Ben Koch. He says, he's got two questions. Because you're a super fan, I'm going to allow it. I'm going to allow two questions. I'll allow it. And he says, question one, before the council, were there so many masses for various needs and occasions? Are there any such masses that would be good for priests to offer during this pandemic? That's question one. Should we do that one first? Yes. Yes. Okay. Chris. Okay. Uh, were there uh, many masses for various needs and occasions uh, prior to the council? I don't know, but I don't think so. I don't think so. I, I know that uh, masses for the dead were said very often, and sometimes 
you'd end up uh, with two or three different colics at the same mass if you have overlapping octaves and things like that. But I don't gather that there were masses for various needs and occasions, so certainly not to the degree that we have now. There are lots of them now for the church, for a pope, mm-hmm. for a bishop, the election of a bishop, for religious, laity, evangelization of peoples, persecuted Christians. I'm looking at the list. A country, city, president, congress, peace, justice, war, <laughs> those in those in time of famine, those who suffer from famine, lots of stuff like that. So uh, there's lots of them now. What there was before, I do not know. But we just got the new prayers, right, Chris, from yeah. Rome? Yeah, well, I heard about this uh, breaking news from you, Dennis, that uh, the Holy See uh, just released a new Mass for Various Needs in time of pandemic. So what do you, do you know anything about it? Well, I mean, there. Uh, I saw the prayers here. There's reading from Isaiah. Truly the Lord has borne our infirmities. He's carried our sorrows as uh, in an entrance and a fond. You know, it's a good Catholic understanding that we suffer, but we don't suffer in vain. And then the collects talk about uh, the collect talks about going to God and turning to Him in our distress, asking Him to heal the sick. Uh, prayer over the offerings are very similar. You know that these gifts become a source of healing, and uh, you know they're short and lovely and kind of Roman, so uh, they're good. And that you, you know, these are just the proper texts for you know a mass. You can say all the mm-hmm. other normal parts, right? And there's some suggested readings. Yeah, and it's uh, so it came out a couple of days ago. But these masses for various needs have you can't say them on just any day. So I don't think you can say them during Holy Week or the Easter octave. So now that they came out, I don't yeah. think you could use them for a couple of weeks now. But that's all right. I mean, you know, everything gives way to Jesus, and uh, this these these times are you know take precedence. But yeah, the new mass setting that can be said uh, on on other days very soon. Okay, that is question one. Ben, you get a question two. He says, I think the germ states that the Lamb of God should be sung during the fraction and that it should take as long as needed until the fraction is completed. But we should always conclude with the text, grant us peace. Can you describe or envision a situation in which you need to keep saying, have mercy on us more than twice? I've always thought that would be interesting and humorous. I agree. And also, I didn't even know the germ said this. So, yes, paragraph eight. 83 in chapter 2, and here's the actual thing. It says, this invocation accompanies the fraction of the bread and for this reason may be repeated as many times as necessary until the rite has been completed. But it concludes with the words, grant us peace. We had that issue in the liturgical institute a number of years because we had a lot of concelebrating priests and so the, they would want to distribute the precious, I mean, the, uh, the Eucharist to all these concelebrating priests to be like 20 of them. And, you know, the server would go by with the patent and they would each take a host. But sometimes that took a while and it, they wanted to keep the Agnus Day uh, going through that time. So that's one situation where, where uh, I know we've used that before. Yeah, I was thinking of like these large diocesan masses, like an ordination or a chrism mass where you've got 100 or 150 priests there. But usually what that we would do, and I suppose most places would do, they do some sort of polyphonic setting that, you know, takes five minutes to, to sing, uh, you know, the, the regular on you stay rather than just keep repeating it, repeating it, repeating it, repeating it. But yeah, it's conceivable, but I think it's mostly in these concelebration uh, contexts. Right. Because all the priests have to have the Eucharist in their hands before the behold the lamb of God. Right. That's so right. From that. Sometimes. Right. From that altar. And if it, if there's 30, 40 concelebrants, that can take a while. And I guess, you know, you don't, there's nothing wrong with silence, but I suppose the fraction rite is accompanied by 
the Lamb of God, and that's I guess all part of the fraction, right? And they want to keep that uh, that prayer song through that whole thing. I don't think there's too many uh, occasions when that would happen, but in celebration, I I would think is probably the principal one. Yeah. Okay. How's that? I hope that answers your question, Ben. And Thank you, super fan, Ben. If you want to ask a, ask us a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys or text Dennis at. Uh, what's my name again? D-Mac Super. Yeah, D-Mac Super Taster. I keep Taste wanting to say d mac d mac d Yeah, that's out there somewhere, but it got hijacked by somebody. Yeah. So if you go to d mac d you're going to get something else. Or you could uh, find a divining rod and find the nearest creek near Soldier's Grove and reach Chris at what's your geo-coordinates? I can't remember. He's near the Kickapoo River. Just follow the Kickapoo River. <laughs> Left at Albuquerque. I love this new thing. Oh, and we have a new contest idea. Uh, from a listener, and he said if uh, people should submit funny ways to reach Chris. So if you want to submit a funny way to reach Chris, and we deem this hilarious, it will not only be read on the show and you'll be cited as a source, but maybe we'll send you a prize too for yeah. the one. So send us those ideas. My favorite right now is when uh, we said we should send you Bitcoin and you didn't know what that was. That was That's the top of my list right now. So. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you and God bless. God bless. God bless. Now that's a podcast. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by the Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake, Adoremus, Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College.